Before we begin, I would like to emphasize that this podcast is separate from my teachings and work at Del Seton Medical Center. Any discussions we have on this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and in no way connected to Del Seton Medical Center. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Life of Flow. Today, here with my amigo, Dr. Lucas Ferrer, Miguel Montero Baker, and we have the absolute pleasure of sharing this hour with a colleague, a great esteemed colleague of ours, Dr. Shreya Sheth. She is a cardiologist at the number one cardiovascular center for pediatric care in America, Texas Children's Hospital. And she's gonna be discussing today a little bit about performance rounds and what have they learned from aviation safety and how they apply that to the care of overly complex case scenarios. So I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Lucas, we should just jump into it. Let's do it. Two vascular surgeons walk into a bar and come out with a podcast. We are talking everything vascular and not. Welcome to the Life of Flow podcast. All right, so I'm I'm really excited about today. Lucas, I'll mm-hmm. tell you, as we've been working on this project for a few months now, thinking about the people we want to bring on board, it's it's kind of cool to start understanding your network, right? And, mm-hmm. and you you start going through all these people that somehow you've interacted with. Yeah. And then you start thinking, who can I have a really cool conversation that people may want to listen? Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I don't know how that, that's been for you. But anyway, today we are incredibly happy to hear uh, that our good friend and colleague, Dr. Shreya Sheth, said yes to this experiment, by the way, because it is an experiment for us. Uh, First episode. Yeah, I mean, episodio yeah. uno. Episodio uno. Bienvenidos. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so we'll see where it goes. We we are certainly very excited with this, not to, to create a, a, a monologue on the front end here, yeah. but I think it's important for you because I you don't know Shreya. No, right? I don't know. Yeah, so and why so, don't you give us a little intro? Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so Shreya, Dr. Shreya Sheth, uh, Dr. Lucas Ferrer, vascular surgeon here in Austin. She's a, a cardiologist in uh, Texas the Children in Houston in the Medical Center. And I met Shreya indirectly through my wife. My wife works at uh, TCH and she's involved in quality. And of course, I get to get all that indirect stuff that happens at home and all these yeah. Zoom meetings that now you're inevitably involved in, right? Because yeah. the world has now yeah. become incredibly invasive. So everybody's involved with everybody's stuff at home and your Zoom makes it a Zoom of the family. Yeah. I've heard a lot of what you do, but how about you just give a, a high level, Shreya, of what it is that you do and uh, and at work, and then I'll kind of back up and understand a little bit more about you. But maybe we'll start by saying what it is that this project you do is is a little bit about for for people that don't necessarily even know about medicine. For sure. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm very honored to be the first guest on this show. I feel like I should be thanking you all for having me here for sure. Um, This is very exciting to like hang out over Zoom. Uh, Most of the time we're all like business on these things. So that's great. Um, So here at Texas Children's, I am the director for quality and safety for our Texas Children's Heart Center. So I'm a cardiologist by training a pediatric cardiologist. My first round of training was in general pediatrics, which was amazing. Although I very quickly realized I'm not the person that should be advising anyone on sleep training. And then from there, (laughs) 
Um, my background is in engineering, like my undergraduate degree is in engineering and sort of like the plumbing of cardiology and especially congenital cardiology, where often things are like connected in weird ways and you got to figure out how to reconnect the system so it works. Um, that was really attractive to me. And so I did a cardiology fellowship um, after pediatric residency and then did another year, an additional year, which a lot of us do. Mine was focused on imaging. So I do everything from fetal cardiology, babies inside of mamas, all the way out to just under adults. I don't see adults anymore. Um, and we take care of like a wide spectrum of disease. And that's like another thing that's really attractive. Um, you see kids that have like a little thing and then are healthy. You see lots of kids that maybe have something but are healthy. And then you see some really, really sick kids. It's a huge spectrum of disease. There's outpatient, inpatient care, all sorts of procedural subspecialties within cardiology. And the other thing that's lovely is that you almost never work solo. You almost always work as a team with other specialists. So here at TCH, we're a very large center for what we do. Um, we work with a big team of cardiac anesthesiologists, a big team of cardiac ICU doctors, um, our, of course, cardiothoracic surgeons who really rewire the plumbing, um, and then cardiologists, as well as all of the other groups that work within our inpatient spaces, like pharmacists, respiratory therapists, and everybody's here kind of with this one goal to take care of kids with uh, hearts that aren't working so well and help make them better and get them home. Um, and so I think that was that teamwork part was something that I was really uh, kind of attracted to in pediatric cardiology because you have like so much um, real like depth of specialty knowledge, but everybody has to try and figure out how to get all the pieces together for the patient. Um, and I kind of like was a pretty easy segue into kind of where my job is now because I like the processes. I like to figure out about how do we get all of these people doing their very subspecialized job to really line up really well for our patients to get the best care that they need? Um, and so that um, kind of aspect of uh, processes, quality, patient safety within kind of our in and out patient units, um, that was really kind of interesting to me. And so fairly early in my career, I think I um, started to gravitate towards like bigger picture quality and safety work for pediatric cardiology patients. So Shreya, let me interrupt you real quick. So we're talking about high complexity clinical pathways, right? You don't necessarily think of it because I, I, I'd like to, when I think as a vascular surgeon, we don't necessarily have, I think, you, you know, incredibly complex long-term paths of multi-elemental care in the sense that I, I think of high complexity of, or maybe we do, I don't know, Lucas, I, I, we have, let's say, heart failure, yeah. heart failure team and, and some cancer care and maybe transplant units, right? Transplant tends to be a very complex uh, group yeah. of patients. Congenital heart tends to be a very complex, right? You yeah. have POM, you have CARDS, you have ICU, you have uh, surgery, et cetera. So anything that you can relate to that, that has so many intricate variables in what I mean, we do? I mean, I think limb salvage suits should be that, but the way the incentives are structured, I think kind of prevents it in most places because obviously it's, you know, everything goes into into that. And it would be, ideally it would be to have degree of complexity, but maybe complex aortic, maybe. I don't I do not do complex aortics just, on a regular basis. I don't basis, necessarily so. see the the... Is trauma a little bit like that? Nah, I don't know. I'm trying to I, think. I mean, maybe. Yeah. It just, maybe. It, it, my it, trauma it, colleagues it are going to like. feel like, it, you know, yeah. in trauma, yeah. it's whoever's up at two in the morning. And <laughs> no, I mean, I think they manage, obviously, like, a com like somebody can come in with multiple injuries and 
you have a cohort of people managing different things at the same time, and you need to kind of wrangle that in a cohesive way. And, and, and it, there and is that, there's very, that. It's fast paced, right? There's a very yeah. a lot of of acute decision making that has to happen on the spot. Yeah. So yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I, I mean, so. I would say trauma, heart failure. Yeah. certain transplant surgeries, congenital heart abnormalities. Yeah. And yeah, I am actually accepting your, your comment. I think we can add limb preservation. I think so. Because you're talking about a... diabetology, nutrition, yeah. prosthetics, uh, podiatry, yeah. vascular care, cardiology yeah. care. It, yeah. It, like all these... That's what it should be. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and so, but anyway, this is going to be really interesting because as vascular surgeons, why in the world can we not have what they have, right? That level of organization and detail. And yeah. like you said, I think the alignment, but maybe we can land on that a little bit later, but the yeah. alignment of the structure of the healthcare and how you get incentivized Incentives, and how yeah. the pay structures happen and a lot of those, yeah. which I don't think is a huge deal, uh, Shreya, when you work in an academic large facility, right? It's more like, hey, you negotiate, here's your deal, here's your salary, and then from then on, it's more like you're you're working focused on the patient. It, it, it's not necessarily you know there's not that thing in the in the back of your mind. Although I'm sure the administratives love bringing that up of how many RVUs you're producing. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. So I think um, I am I am lucky in academics to be tied and as a non proceduralist. So that maybe it's different for like cath docs and EP docs and stuff. But I as a non proceduralist in academics, I'm a little bit lucky to not have to be tied to a not that I'm not held to an RVU standard, but I am not as worried about my production, which gives me the space to do kind of like other things. Specifically in my job, I do a lot of administrative time and a lot of teaching. Um, and I, I get to do that because I'm in academics and nobody's like, hey, how many RVUs did you produce today? Yeah. Um, it's always a conversation, I think. It's again, an inevitable all, conversation. We and all have partnerships with administrators who have needs that are sometimes different I, from our needs. But can I ask you about something? A little more kind of made up. So you had a back. You have a background in engineering. So <laughs> I understand your kind of proclivity to processes and such. But then you did medicine. I think medicine, as much as we say it's a science, it's it's an art, really. I mean, it's judgment and. Um, you know, once for me, one study doesn't change what I do. It, it it's a it informs what I do, but but my experience and 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 my the people that have taught me as uh, you know inform what I do. Um, so how do you bring those two things together? Because I very much gravitate to the art of it. That's kind of why I wake up every day. I I the process of it sometimes I feel like it infringes on the art uh, of it. Um, so how do you balance those two things? Yeah, I'll agree. I mean, I think in medicine, we call that a little bit like systems engineering, right? So it's, mm -hmm. you're taking kind of the context in which you have to work. I have this hospital and we have this number of beds and I have to see this many patients in clinic and generate this many RVUs. And then you're taking that human aspect, which like, this is my area of expertise. This is how I like to interact with my patients. Here's the standard of care that I want to hold myself to. Here's the learning that I do with like new research studies. And then how you bridge the gap between those two or like make them work cohesively together. I think that's where quality and process improvement lives. It's like, I know what I want as my standard of care. I know the research studies. I know sort of the best practice models. I know what I bring to the table with my own personality and my background and how I relate to patients. And then here is the kind of hard area in which I work, like my space, my time, my RVUs, my 
culture in my hospital for what's important and how much I can do for patients, et cetera, what the capacity is of my units, what I have for resources in terms of other ancillary services. And then you put those things together. So what I loved about kind of quality and process improvement for the beginning is that it looks a little different everywhere else, everywhere, but the principles are kind of the same. And so, you know, what you're trying to do is get the best out of the human to sort of coax the best out of the system and then really get the best care for the patient. Sounds yeah. a little hope. Is the concept of over-optimization as a kind of detrimental force something that you guys think about when you come in? Because I feel like sometimes you put in a person to do a specific task in the goal of optimizing one specific thing. But, the you know, that person doesn't see the forest, sees the tree. And I don't know, that's something I, you know, I think I've, I've kind of was reading it in a book and it made a lot of sense one morning when I was, you know, driving to work. Is that something that's thought about? Because I, I feel like that, that kind of like leads you know, I, I think that is there is some truth to over-optimizing can lead to the opposite effect. And it actually probably leads to a lot of like the unsatisfaction that doctors feel when they work patients. in a hospital or even patients. Yeah, yeah. if you're optimizing sort of a doctor's time for RVUs, then what you're doing is taking away from your ability to kind of really bond and talk to the patient, really win them over and try and get them to do the best thing for their care. Um I think that is where healthcare differs from like aviation um, and, you know, industrial engineering. It's that the the human factor is so important and you're taking these people, doctors, pharmacists, respiratory therapists who are truly experts in their purview, but need to be able to work together. Um, so I, I think over-optimization is a thing. I also think like it's really easy, you know, we talk a lot here about over-standardization. Um, and I think one thing that's like uh, important to understand in kind of quality and process improvement and optimizing these systems is that you're doing it for the most part so that when you deviate, you do it for a really good reason and you expect those deviations. So if I say I'm making a protocol for, um, you know, I don't know, vascular plugs after cath procedures. And I'm like, okay, well, these are the you know plugs that you have to use and it has to be done with this kind of ultrasound guidance and you have to document it this way. What you end up doing is sort of sometimes over-protocolizing things that you want people to get a little creative about when they need to, because that's the expertise that they understand, you know? So I don't want to limit the devices you can use if you know that none of those are going to fit where you need them to fit. I obviously don't do this part for a living, you can tell. Um, but so there is that. I mean, there is there's a sense that like, you know, administration wants doctors optimized to the nth degree or we have to have these systems running on. But you can't do that with humans. Right. And you, medicine, like you said, is such an art that you have to like the humane part of medicine has to have some room. Um, and I think people are pretty, pretty conscious. It's easy to get cynical in what we do sometimes, I think, because it looks so different than it did decades ago and it will look different in decades. But the thing is that when you're working with teams, and I mean, this is, I, I'm sure I know Lucas very well. Lucas is the kind <laughs> of guy well. <laughs> that, you know, he'll go into the OR, he'll be very knowledgeable ahead of time. And he goes in there and things go south and he just wings it, right? I mean, he, he's like, I, I've got this depth of knowledge and I'm in this problem and I'm winging it and I'm going to get this guy out. I'm going to get this patient. Or in your case, I'm going to get this kid off the table, right? But 
that I don't think that gets, I don't think that's threatened by having performance based systematic approach. Well, you know, it's threatened. No, well, but I, that's, it, I disagree in a way. Every, because every I, day. I think that yeah. so I, would call I, that like Trez, I love your comments because yeah. the question is, you know, you're not curtailing your surgeons from doing what they have to do. It's more about, hey, the organization and the synchrony that has to happen for that patient that came into the ED, for that ultrasound to happen, for that echo to be happening at the same time that those labs are happening, for there being no, like, you know, so that that machine is oiled. And there's moments where the wheels are off, like, and you got to take care of that patient but, uh, regardless. I, I completely agree. But the thing is, that you can't get people to shut off that because that I think that has for me personally that has no place in like in the, how I conduct a, a procedure right so it has no place in the decision I make as like for this problem like what we do is a lot by feel like we're looking at a two-dimensional image and th thinking three dimensions taking you know feedback with our hands so I make decisions sometimes by how it feels. Like, I think, like, for this, I want this wire because it feels right. But that doesn't and remove the fact that that patient needs a heparin drip. No, of needs course. To go to the ICU, but the thing is the mentality. And everything or, needs to happen. Yeah, but the thing is the, the, the mentality. set up so you can yeah. get the wire that you need, right? So I, I think yeah. when we design safe systems, we design systems to control as many things as you can so that you're able to make the best decision in that time and you've got what you need. No, 100%. So you design systems to be able to accommodate um, that, the human workaround. Because honestly, if you look at sort of what happens in a hospital and you look at like, say, a case from start to beginning, you will see if you analyze it so many times where someone was like, oh, it doesn't feel right. And then change the course of that patient's care, yeah. right? Yeah. Not because they had some protocol telling them to, but sometimes like it's better to not put those things into policy necessarily that people have to, right? So I think there's a little bit of a misnomer that like protocols mean that every decision is made for you and there's no deviation from that decision. Some things need to be protocolized so that you have equipment that you need. You have sort of an expected pathway for like 80% of these patients to go down. But the protocol that doesn't work is the one that dictates care so tightly that there's no ability for humans to accommodate in there. You guys know as well as I do, no two patients are exactly alike. And even if they are alike, they go into these systems and can get knocked off a pathway. It's like Plinko, right? And so the the part of the human interaction with that system is getting that Plinko ball back on the path that you wanted to. So your end bucket is the good outcome. And I think that's that's where like safety science comes in. You want to be able to have humans, which honestly, a lot of times are the best part of the system because they're resilient and they can change paths and they can accommodate to make up for the places where the system lacks your goal and sort of healthcare improvement is to design systems that help that human as much as possible you know i completely agree with that and i as you know a son of an engineer too who was like i think that's why i hate checklists so much your dad's uh, an engineer yeah my, my dad's a mechanical engineer uh, that explains so much that right? explains a lot yeah. about you <laughs> yeah mm, exactly the, the rebellious son uh, okay, so I understand the value of processes um, because obviously I have seen the I lack. I just don't like to live by them. I just, yeah, but yeah, but that's, that's just, that's, that's my, that's my Freudian, you know, thing. You know, you get these ideas and ideas, you know, have their own, 
you know, mind and force, and they permeate through an institution. And it's difficult then to, because I think they, they do have, and they should be the dominating force in certain aspects of it. Like, yeah, the process of getting a patient in and, and, and such, and like getting equipment and all that stuff. But the thing is like, how do you, then how do you stop it? Because if there's a moment where that, that idea should have no place. There's a moment where, where you're making the life and the decision. And that idea of protocolization I mean, I think has no place. Well, I don't know. Uh, I think it serves a purpose. Like, look at like algorithms for ACLS, right? Like, there's a reason there are algorithms for ACLS. Now, if you have a cardiologist in the room who's looking at the monitor and they're like, wait, don't shock this patient, then you have like one of the like the um, pillars of uh, resilience in healthcare, which is deference to expertise. But 95% of the patients that code, I made that number up, 95% of the patients that code may not have like a cardiology expert in the room. So there has to be a protocol, right? Like there has to be a, here's how we save most of the patients and we can teach this to people and they can deploy it. And then you buy time to call for help, right? So I I think it's that there is, there's certainly like, I don't know that anybody would even practice medicine if everything we did was dictated by some rigid protocol. Like I certainly wouldn't. But what I think is fascinating is in the setting. Isn't that where it's headed? Don't don't people talk about like doctors working for Amazon? Because I've heard that in academia. I will all be working for Amazon. And that's like, I I can shoot myself in the face right now (laughs) if that happens, you know? I I, I think before doctors. Talk about your cynicism here. Yeah. Um, Exactly. Before doctors work for Amazon, there will be AI doctor consults, probably. Yeah. And they'll work for Amazon. But potentially those will serve some purpose and the bell will swing back the other way as well. So, like, you know, I think there is a place for protocolization of the things that help us teach uh, mm-hmm. the things that help enforce kind of standards of care where they may be difficult to enforce. Um, but I don't think, I mean, I think again, one of the pillars of resilience in healthcare is deference to expertise and understanding how people interact with systems to lead to the best outcomes for a patient, as opposed to like systematically rigidly dictating how everything goes, because we know that actually doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work. Well, one of the, the the things that I think, you know, kudos to you for maneuvering is imagine, you know, Lucas and all, you know, all his haterade uh, <laughs> being a vascular surgeon. Now imagine a cardiothoracic surgeon because we all oh know that, God. that's oh like the God. next yeah. level <laughs> of and yeah. in an incredibly diplomatic way. And again, this is all hearsay because I get to join secretly behind the scenes yeah. uh, and pass and fly by. Not that I'm paying any attention. I'm not compromising anybody's safety or security or privacy. I'm just saying it seems like there's a lot of management of, of personalities when you are, you know, hey, I am a systems in a way optimizer. My job is to bring everybody to the table and in a way find some common ground in which we can all agree that as a whole, we need to do better because of those 3 a.m. calls or, or because at that moment you need that wire and it's not there, then then it, it all goes down to, you know, the guy that had to order that wire and maybe the guy that had to unpack the wire from the truck in the box downstairs. And so when you do performance rounds, it seems like it's an opportunity to dive into all this. And so... Tell me a little bit about, let's say, you, you, you know, the complexities. 
two or three things that you've noticed are the hardest when you're trying to get a, a system and not only a system, but all the humans in that system to align and collaborate when a lot of them may have some very strong feelings about order and, and they don't like this or they don't like to even be part of this or they feel it's a waste of time. Yeah. No, I think, you know, the things that we stay away from are the things that it sounds like Lucas worries about. Like I'm, I'm not here to be the principal, right? Like one of our, one of our key goals with performance rounds was like, we need a way to talk about not just every bad thing that happens, but also like, hi, all of you guys participate in so much complex care every day that goes well. Like we need to be able to highlight those things as well. So we all know like, Hey, this actually, this went awesome. And we should do this the next time, you know, like it's an opportunity to do both of those things. So just a background, like performance rounds is a, it's a conference we hold essentially weekly. And what we do is we take all of the procedures that happen in our heart center in the ORs and the cath labs, and we review them. And there's a whole triage mechanism because that's a tons of, that's a ton of procedures for us, but um, on which cases we talk about, but what sort of kind of rises up is like, we want to know how many of these types of procedures do we do? Is this something we do all the time? Is this something we do rarely? We have some benchmarks for like, hey, here's what usually happens. These types of kids stay in the house for like four days and then they go home and whoa, this one stayed 15, what happened? Um, and, and it's a learning conference. It's really a conference where you get to think about like, oh, you know, I can tell you why this went sideways because, you know, X, Y, Z happened and here's what we needed and we didn't have. Or, hey, this went really well because all of these people came to the table to talk about this patient before they were born and we got everything set up that we needed. We should do that every time. Um, and what it is for us is it's learning. It's learning about the system. I don't care what you did with the epinephrine. If you went up, you went down. I don't care. What I want to know is I couldn't titrate that epinephrine because I couldn't find a pharmacist on the unit. We need more pharmacists, like mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Do you have, because it seems like a lot of this is admin. So is it only physicians and healthcare workers? In the, no. Because by the way, to set the stage, and I think we're a little discombobulated in that sense that performance round is a weekly one hour, right? It's one hour, okay. one hour event where you essentially go through the caseload, right? You, mm -hmm. you go through, hey, here's how many cases we did. Here's the standard cases we did. But then we select some and then we dive. And it may be a win and it may be a not so win. And who's there? But it, exactly. So who are the so who's at the table? And do you have non-healthcare providers also? Because sometimes I feel administration is responsible. Why don't right. we have more MAs? Why is there not yeah. more mm -hmm. ultrasound techs at two in the morning that could do this and, and provide care? Yeah, certainly leadership in the heart center is there like nursing leadership, medical leadership. And um, most of the time, someone from our admin leadership team is there as well, just because of those things in now two and a half years of doing this. I think what we um, identified is actually the operational stuff that comes up is not as much. It's already known. And by the time we get to these cases, which we, we go back two weeks caseload and then do it on the week. Does that make sense? Like we do the cases from two weeks yeah. ago. So that way yeah. you have some clinical data. Um, in fact, a lot of them are discharged by then. Um, so you've got kind of their full hospitalization. But the operational stuff, a lot of times, is already taken care of. Um, like, oh, hey, we need more temporary pacers. Like, okay, those are already on order. So sometimes the, actually the operational stuff is the easiest to fix, and that already gets fixed by performance rounds. Um, so we'll get updates on that. Uh, a lot of what we end up discussing um, is around the safety of the patient. So events that happen that could have been avoided, um, 
you know, equipment that um, malfunctioned. Again, that takes care of, that gets taken care of pretty easily. So, so, so much around teaming, communication, availability of teams for each other. Um, and I think I joke that it's a little bit like trauma bonding. And <laughs> like, we all, it's a chance for us to be like really kind of candid with each other. Like, you know, I think we, should have talked about this more, or I really I think the family was very upset on how we communicated with them and we can do better next time. People are, are fairly um, genuine in that room. And I think it's taken a little bit of time to get there because it's like Lucas pointed out, you're taking people that don't like to be told what to do. And they certainly don't like to necessarily dwell on things that went wrong because this happens. It happens a lot. Like we all carry a huge burden of taking care of really sick patients all the time. And so Sometimes to rehash that is even harder. So I have a question, practically speaking, uh, because this gives me PTSD back in (laughs) in training. M&M, right? I mean, morbidity and mortality was the dreadful weekly event where you would have to come and essentially get naked in front of a public of 150 doctors, all of which they thought they are the smartest and the best and they've never, ever had a complication. And you're there and you're saying... And so we uh, p- punctured it, 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 the lung, trying to put a, a subclavian axis, yeah. and then we had to put. And then these guys just pontificate about how that's ridiculous, and you would yeah. feel shame, you would feel aberration, like all these yeah. things. And so, one, do you forego M and M? Like, do you remove it with this more benign, more apparently empathetic and evolutionary way of seeing things as a system? Or is Eminem still what it is and continues to be this like god awful situation where everybody points fingers at everybody, and then you have this other arena where these things happen. So how how do you go about it and and how you do it? You know, for a lot of our procedural specialists, like American College of Surgery, uh, they sort of mandate that you have M and M's in a in a. They don't mandate the format necessarily, but it's like still fairly traditional. Every mortality has to get looked at. We actually took mortalities out of this group because we have a separate M&M. Okay. Um, and, and I will say that M&M is remarkably non-toxic. Um, because really? I think some of the principles that we learn in meetings like performance rounds, where we have guidelines, like you will be respectful. You will recognize that everybody in here is just trying to do the best in their job every day. So this is not a place where we lay blame. It's not a place where we rehash clinical decision-making that individuals made at the bedside when they were in a stressful situation trying to take care of these really sick kids. But it is a place where we can look for team learning. Where could we have communicated better? Where could we have worked together a little bit more fluidly as a team? How did we do with our transitions of care from units to units or ORs or cath labs or whatever? Like, you know, that kind of system-based stuff. That's what we want to look at. Do you have the resources you need? Was the palliative care team available? Did you call them? Like, you know, those sorts of conversations, those are appropriate for this forum because that's where our learning is. And those are things that we can fix. That traditional model of M&M where you fall on your sword for that complication that you had. And you don't really think about it more than like this complication happened to me and everybody's like, well, that would never happen to me. Like that has no place really I don't think in how we practice medicine anymore the key word you use there was shame like yeah. as parents we know that kids don't learn that way you know like that's not an appropriate way to teach people how to be better it's just a good way to make them feel bad um and so you, you I, think, think yeah the, right. the, there's no there's no space for suffering in learning suffering yes shame or no I mean 
Well, I mean, it's going to a spectrum of the same. Like every, like one of the things that I think about sometimes if I'm going to do anything and I'm having a, a thought, it's like, should I do this or should I do that? It's like, sometimes I think like, if I, what would like my program director is Dr. Amy Goldberg. She's like, yay tall, but I've never been so afraid of somebody in my life, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, and I think it's like, okay, what would Amy Goldberg would she say, say in Eminem? if I did this and that is like a guiding light. Is it my, really? Yeah, it is. Um, is that shame or is that the voice that keeps you from making of reason in a way? I mean, she, irrational decision. she, I mean, uh, she's now like very high up there. So I'm not going to say it, but she wasn't like the, <laughs> she was a tough cookie. How about that? How about that? And there's, I was reading, you know, listening to, to this audiobook, and there's something called the Lindy effect. Have you ever heard of this? No, there's this, um, restaurant or a shop in new york city called the lindy and they supposedly made a really good cheesecake so and some <laughs> academics went there and they came up with this term called the lindy effect uh, to the fact that the longer an idea lasts is predictive of how long it will last so somebody something an idea lasts two weeks the chance of it lasting another two weeks is pretty high if it's lasted 50 years the chances that it's going to last another 50 years is pretty high that's I'm butchering it of this was like put it like Nassim Taleb wrote this book called skin in the game and he describes it much better than I just did but it makes a lot of sense to me I mean I think but in the sense of what what in relation to what to the concept of M&M how long has the concept of M&M been around and served the function so the concept oh. of M&M meaning that, that you're that you're supportive of the necessity of of having these yeah, yeah. I, I, it's like the, the the biggest learning. It's like the most learning I ever. Well, did my last Eminem, I want to say, was maybe five years ago. Yeah, I have not been in an Eminem. I love it in a long time. I think Eminems now look very different than they did when I was training, and it yeah. was being like, "This is my fault. I did it. Throw your tomatoes." Yeah. Now it's more like, okay this happened and I understand I am not shirking the responsibility for this complication, but let's think about how we prevent this from happening again. Like there's that like better analysis. No, it doesn't course. stop at shame, right? Yeah. Ownership is one thing. Yeah. Vulnerability to say like, yeah, this was on me or somebody else to be like, Hey, this really sucked. And I wish you hadn't done that. Yeah. There's a way to do that respectfully. And I think that is, that is still a very important part. But you know, I'm, I'm going like, to respectfully disagree. I bet yeah. you that there are very toxic programs across America. Oh, it's still happening. Where yeah. Eminem is a throw a tomatoes yeah, show. What is more toxic than, than you making a mistake and somebody having a really bad effect from it? I mean, you need to, no, no, no. you need There's to absolutely, deal, you, you know, know, self life is tough. Do you need to carry that shame into a public, like, the, I guess it's the, um, it's the whipping boy part of it that I don't understand, you know, like, why yeah. do I need to be up here for you guys to throw tomatoes? Like, I already feel, I'm not a sociopath. I feel terrible about because, this. Yeah, because I mean, it's an act of extreme responsibility, which I think we should, we should always like, we should, we should have ex responsibility as inter, you know, as inter, I think as interventionalist to an uh, extreme. I think everybody in healthcare, think, we have our closet of yeah. little memories. Yeah. No, we things do. that we know. I, yeah. If I would have could have practice. They huh? shape the way you practice. Every, they shape yeah. the way you practice. A hundred percent. They should. A hundred percent. Every I'll tell you this. Every time I see a uber calcified small little aorta, mm -hmm. 
I, sh- I immediately yeah. think of one case where I had a perf and it was like went south very fast. Yeah. And I remember like if it was yesterday when she looked at me starting the procedure and said, am I going home today? And I said, yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm going to put discharge orders. Yeah. And this is now 15 years later. Yeah. Every single time I'm starting to poke that case, my heart rate goes up. Yeah. And I immediately think of her voice. Yeah. But I don't think that got in any way remediated by going through an M&M and having right. to tell all these old guys and how they said that they would have never done that because if they would have done open surgery, I would have never done that but with a stent. Isn't it like a ritual? It's, isn't it, isn't it like a ritual we have to go through? Like, like when a kid is too old. Shreya's point, I hope that they've changed and I hope there are programs that they have changed. It's I don't not like know we that. don't do it. We yeah, do yeah. it. And there's yeah. a reason we do it because there's yeah. so much learning to happen there, right? Not just for, say, the proceduralist who did that case. Yeah. Um, trust me, by the time it gets to an M&M meeting, they've already had 70 conversations, right? But I think that aspect of shame where you're like, well, I would never. I mean, yes, you would. We all do. We all do. Yeah, and we all do. No we all do. out of the woods, right? No, yeah. You're going to go into nine calcific aortas and it's going to have worked out. And then the 10th one explodes and you're like, yeah. well, I didn't do anything differently that time. Like, it's yeah. just a crappy protoplasm, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think to heap shame upon that is like, Dumb. Now, if you're having a conversation that's like, you know, how was your approach and what could we have done differently? And, you know, would you think about doing something differently the next time? Or what resources did you need that you didn't have? It allows that person to think, how can I change this? Right. When we think of traditional M&Ms back in the day, they were just like you bad done. They weren't now it's more like, okay, well, that whole thing goes down again. How are you going to do things differently next time? And that's where the learning is. So it's that, I think. It's not, I agree that th- there's a lot of room for self-reflection. There's a lot of room for responsibility. I don't think there's room for shame. Yeah. Is there any objective performance goals that can validate your your quest here of, of this journey that, you, you know, self, not self-appointed, that you've been appointed to be the leader and the director of this program it's multi-specialty, multi-systemic. You're trying to push the needle. You are the, by the way, number one hospital in cardiovascular care in America. I mean, Texas Children is phenomenal and amazing. So you're clearly doing something wrong. I mean, right. <laughs> yeah, but Freudian, Freudian sleep, um, right? Yeah. No, no. You're clearly doing something right. <laughs> I think, I think we're I, always. How do so you, how do you objectivize we're, this performance thing that we're doing and we're investing time mm-hmm. is pushing the needle in this way. So do you have research abstracts what production is there if any to tell any naysayers or any haters no this is exactly what we need to be doing and look at where we were here look at where we're now like what where have you measured the effect of doing this and bringing everybody up to the table we've used this as a platform for a lot of things right there's case analysis and that's kind of the biggest one but it's also an opportunity for people to have candid conversations so in the background we're always sort of like thinking of like sort of the psychological aspects of teaming that happened during this um place where we create a space for people to have conversations um and we're also thinking of like you know what changes are we putting into place as a result of conversations that we've had in here that are affecting our patient outcomes over the long term so we track a number of things we track who's speaking in the room um you know is it just like a surgeon speaks up and then every case a surgeon spoke up and nobody else said anything that's not like a hospitable environment you're not really creating a space where people can talk 
But, you know, do we have junior people talking? Do we have non-physicians talking? Are we like creating a place where people can say like, oh, actually there's a project happening on that. And so there's some awareness that's being shared. Um, so we track who's kind of speaking in the room. We look at um, the follow-up items that are generated from these conversations. So again, like, okay, we're missing some, we need more temporary pacemakers. We'll put it on a list and we'll follow up. Like, did these pacemakers get ordered? Great, did that problem kind of get solved? Um, or at least addressed in kind of the near time. So we have projects that have been generated. There are like data polls that have been generated and we keep kind of a list of, of running kind of um, follow-up items from this um, conference that we refer back to and kind of keep uh, moving as kind of the quality work that our heart center does. Um, and then the big picture outcomes, you know, it's really hard to say that the one conference where we're talking about stuff has changed our mortality rates, right? Those are like very multifactorial. There's a ton of stuff that goes into that, but we watch things like our overall length of stay for these patients. If you hear that ex surgeons, VSDs all get out in three days, but you're like, Hey, my VSDs are taking six days to get out. And in performance rounds, you're hearing, well, extubated on post-op day zero, chest tubes out on post-op day one, and by post-op day three, they were up out of bed, left the hospital on Lasix. You start thinking like, oh, maybe I need to be doing that to my patient. So we've actually seen a little bit more standardization in our post-operative care um, because of this. And, and for a couple of lesions, it's actually like the, the more... Um, predictable post-operative care has decreased our length of stay a little. And I won't attribute that directly to performance rounds, but I think the awareness of sort of like what other people are doing, what the right hand's doing, what the left hand's doing in a space like that helps people be like, oh, this is the way we do things. Um, and that's something we've kind of like focused on a little bit as well. So if you had to do this all over again, mm. meaning let's go, when did you get hired for this? Post-pandemic, so like 20, 20, well, maybe 2019, maybe right before. All right, so this is like, now about like two, two or three years. I'm just wondering we started what your experience has been. Would yeah, you take the job head. again? If the, if Let's say we go on a time machine knowing what you know now. Would you take this job again? <laughs> Are you in love with the commission that you've had? And would you do it um, all over again? And, and if, yeah. if so, would you do it? Maybe yes, but you'd do it a little bit different. I think we've learned a lot. This conference has evolved a ton since we started. It's our own little quality improvement project where we have different things that we'll try out and we'll see if they stick or not, or if they improve things. So um, the way it looked in 2020, when we really took it over to the way it looks now, very different. And a lot of that is like, okay, well, what is the audience getting from this? Like, what do you guys need as members of this heart center who are taking care of our patients? from this conference. Do you need us to sit here and like rehash everything with these patients? Do you want more about like, you know, how many of these do we see a year and what's their average course or whatever? Um, what do you need from this? So I think that that kind of constant work on improving how people interact with this conference and what it does for them has changed a lot over the last three years. If I had to do it again, um, I would, what would I do? I think so much of the early part of doing this was us figuring out how to talk to each other. That took a while. Um, how to like really sort of be candid, how to feel like you were safe to say stuff in that space. Um, we moderate the discussion when it starts sort of like going sideways into blame territory, we have to bring it back a little bit. And so there's a moderator on all of these. There's four of us that kind of take turns doing it. 
it's mostly me. Um, <laughs> but I know I keep trying, but it's at like 7am on a Tuesday and people are like, ah, oh, I'm busy. Um, so, but it's good. I mean, I think it's our, it's one of our highest attended conferences in the heart center, even after like three years. And I think people get a lot out of it, whether it's like, okay, good. We did talk about that. Cause I thought that thing was going to happen. We were just going to brush it under the rug and never talk about it. Like now, you know, it's coming to performance rounds. We'll have a conversation. Maybe it won't be like the, like, grenades you wanted to throw but we're not going to do that here and if you got some grenades we can take it offline you know so that kind of stuff I think has helped with teaming a lot and I I don't know that having done it differently we would have gotten there any faster I think that just takes us getting in a room and getting used to talking to each other virtually um if I had to do it again I think I would have uh the workload for um maybe even connect that to there's a facility, there's so many hospitals in, in the U.S. dealing with complex diseases, including what Lucas said, what we deal with, limb preservation. And we're trying to do this, and this is, we want your advice. So let's say you're, you're talking to yourself before, but also you're talking to us and saying, as you build your performance rounds teams and you're having to create this, what would be maybe a few tips that you could give us here as we're wrapping up the hour and giving you your time back so you could go back to your family and your patients. But what would you give us as advice in trying to maneuver beginning this programs from zero? Yeah, I would work backwards from the things that you want to accomplish. So teaming and being able to talk to each other, that was a big one for us. So we focused really hard on like open conversations, moderating things when it got a little dirty. Like the other thing I would do is triage the outcomes that are important to you. So if you have areas that you're focused on, post-operative discharge after limb preservation, spend your time analyzing those patients. Don't do every, you know, run of the mill other case that you have. You can triage in a way that makes the time that you spend on this the most effective for you and what you're looking for. And then the other thing that I think is really important is showing people that the conversations that they have in that space are meaningful and result in some change. And that's not everything. I'm not going to take every little problem and design some crazy solution for it because it's not necessary. But like the big things that come up recurrently, the themes that you're seeing, having a, a visible way to show people that the conversations they have are worthwhile and will actually change the environment that they work in in some positive way based on their feedback, that is a huge win. So having, um, you know, very intentional follow-up on some of the items that come through and Do work. you do that personally or do you send an email? Do you call them um, and say, no, hey, I, like I, what you heard, like what you said is yeah. really impactful or do you send an email? Yeah, no, we, we, um, we say we do it objectively. Like, thank you. That's actually, we're going to take that offline and we will bring it back once we have a better, you know, conversation around it, because we're not going to solve the problem in that like one hour meeting while we're trying to talk about 25 other cases. But what we can do is we'll be the ones responsible for kind of setting up a way for this team to get together with this team, hash that out. And in six months, when they figured out some process that works for them, three months, one month, whatever, they're going to come back to this forum and say, hey, here's what we learned based on those cases. Um, and this is what we've done differently. Um, and that I think is really meaningful. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you All so right. much. Thank you so well, much. Well, we're going to let you get back to A, your family, and B, your patients, and from both Lucas and from I. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's been phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so having. much. Thank you yeah. uh, for being on our show, show number one. It's been yeah. a success. You've been super easy to talk to. And I'm sure everybody that's listening is going to take this uh, and enjoy it as much as we did. Yeah. Thank you Listen. very much. Yeah. Uh, Thank thanks you. for having me, guys. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.